0: So really quickly, I need you to lean over to somebody next to you or across the row from you or somebody really close and tell them your favorite movie line, favorite line from any movie ever. I'm ashamed of everyone who has to think about this. This is bad news. All right, really quickly, shout out a few of them to me. Shout them out. What, what are your favorites? Make sure that you remember where you are, um, for some of you. <laughs> the Dude Abides, anybody else? Nobody Puts Baby in a Corner. I have never seen that movie. I don't understand that reference. It's so weird. I know that one was way too long for me. All right, so I decided that rather than me tell you all my favorite movie lines, because we would be here all day when I say things like, so you're telling me there's a chance. Like, when I, if we'd be here all day if I just kept saying, your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. Like, we'd just keep going forever and it wouldn't matter. And I would say things like, if you're not first, you're last. Like, it would just keep going and going. So I decided I would find the most universally known movie lines, like the ones that everybody can, and I was going to put them in the form of a test. So today, you have a test. You might not have studied Some of you might have studied and you didn't even know it. So I'm going to give you a quote and you're going to shout out what movie it's from. And if you win by getting them all right, you get to go outside for 15 minutes because clearly you need a life. <laughs> all right. So are you ready? You can't handle the truth. If you're good man, right, right. Good work, good work, good work. The next one, I, I, I try to deal in, like, with the accent, but I can't. So say hello to my little friend. It's, there's, not an, there's not an award for speed, okay? Like, it's just about accuracy here. Give me a second to catch my breath. All right, the next one. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Very good, good. We got some overachievers over here who are trying to beat me to the punch. All right. <laughs> there's, we're going to need a bigger boat. That Wow, really? There's like two movies about a boat in all of history, one of them is Jaws. Jaws, right? Jaws, da it? da it. That's really surprising to me. This one we already mentioned. I still don't understand the context of it, but no one puts baby in a corner. You always don't have kids if you've never put them in a corner for time out. I don't understand why there's a movie about babies and dirty dancing. Y'all are weird, whatever. All right, um, this one is probably the toughest to actually get right. So hear me out, right? Are you ready? Go ahead, make my day. The very first time that Dirty Harry says this, is in fact in Sudden Impact, which I've never seen. I just looked it up online, so obviously that's the only reason I know. But go ahead and make my day. Glenn Eastwood's favorite line. Uh, this line is probably a pretty easy one for most of you. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Really? The Princess Bride? Well, all right. I guess it goes to show that you all don't watch any movies. That's my wife's favorite movie. That's the only reason I know. Um, this one is also, I thought, was easy. We're not in Kansas anymore good, good. Somebody over here said Dorothy. That's not the name of the movie. <laughs> so I was thinking about all these movie lines and I was thinking about them all week because I kept thinking about this line from a movie that's not really probably all that famous, but is famous enough that every, every day when I sat down to write, this movie was coming through my head and it's the movie Wall Street. And in the middle of the movie, Gordon Gecko says, greed is good. Well, he doesn't actually say greed is good. Uh, What's happening is this character, Gordon Gecko is uh, at a shareholders meeting, and he's trying to explain to the shareholders why it's good that he's taking over their company. And this is actually what he says. He says, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right, greed works, greed clarifies, it cuts through, and it captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed, in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA." And everybody jumps out of their chairs at the shareholders meeting and they shout and they applaud because they're going to get rich, right? And and Gordon Gekko has promised them untold riches and the story of Wall Street is that, right? Like that's the story of this movie. And so I started thinking about that all week as I was thinking about how we're heading into the end of our series, The Head and the Heart. And here at The Head and the Heart, we've been walking through the book of James, which we said is a really easy and basic how-to manual on how to be a follower of Jesus on what to do, on how our head and our heart can shape us. And so this week as we talk, we're going to talk about this idea of greed. Now I want to be very clear because when a a preacher gets up and talks about greed and things like money, people get a little bit uncomfortable. So I want to make sure that we're all comfortable today. Um, And so I want to make a few things clear. Number one, this is not one of those give all your money to the church talks if you want to, you're welcome. (laughs) We'd appreciate it. But this isn't what this is about, okay? This isn't about you're not giving enough to us. This is about your heart being in the right place. That's why we're talking about the head and the heart. The second thing that I want to make really clear is that there is no proof that there is no way you can argue that you can, you have to be poor to be a follower of Jesus. We'll put it that way. It's okay to make money and follow Jesus, It's okay to make a lot of money, and give 10% of it to us, please, 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 and follow Jesus. It's okay. What happens is is everyone is everyone. People will tell you that you can't be rich and be a Christian. You can't have a lot of money and be a Christian. And they'll point to this story that happens in in one of the books about Jesus' life. And it's the story of a guy who we only know as the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus tells him, he says, you, to get to heaven, have to sell everything you have and give all that money to the poor. And so people will look at that and they'll say, see, see, Jesus said, in order to go to heaven, you got to sell all you have and give it all to the poor. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening in that story is this guy has a lot of money and he comes to Jesus and he's used to getting his way and he says, Jesus, who do I have to pay off is really what he's saying. What he's saying is, Jesus, how do I earn my way into heaven? And Jesus knows that the answer is the only way to heaven is through him. But he knows that this guy is never going to do it because he has this big golden idol in front of him. And he won't stop bowing down to the money. And Jesus says, you have to get rid of your money because it's in between us. There are plenty of other people who come to follow Jesus who never, Jesus never once mentions how wealthy they are. And there are plenty of people who have lots of money who follow Jesus and have no problem with that money. The issue isn't about how many numbers are in your bank account. The issue is about what's the condition of your heart. And so it doesn't matter if there's seven digits in your bank account or $7. Greed could be a problem for both of those people. So listen to what James says in James chapter 5, verse 1. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. In other words, he said, welcome to church. We're glad you're here today. Hope you're ready to have fun. So here, here's the thing, right? Like the James opens this chapter by saying, hey, if you're rich, you better be ready to be miserable. And I want to clarify one more thing. When we talk about people being rich, one of the, one of the temptations a lot of times is to say, well, I, I'm not rich. I'm not. You should see my bank account. You should see my house. But here's the bottom line, and I've shared these stats before with you. If your family brings in at least $30,000 this year, that brings in, not including the assets you may have, that guarantees you a spot in the top 1% richest people in the entire world. So that means if your family income is more than $30,000 a year, then you are one of 70 million people out of $7 billion you are top 1% at $30,000. So you might not feel like it, you might not look like it, but you are one of the richest people in the universe. So when we talk about being rich, if you're here in this room today, if you drove to this place today, you are rich. You know, it's interesting to see how James tells the rich people what to be prepared for, right? Right? He says, be prepared for weeping and wailing. In the, in the Gospels, when Jesus is talking, one of the ways that he describes hell is he calls it the place of Gehenna. And Gehenna is a, is a place in Jerusalem. It's the part of town where the, 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 the town trash dump was. And, and if you've ever been to a trash dump, m- more of an unofficial one than like an official licensed one, you've probably seen and smelled the sights of what a dump looks like. And you've probably been to a trash dump where there's always fires burning, like there's always tires and, you know, there's always something burning and it kind of smells and it's rotting and it's disgusting. So when Jesus describes hell, he describes for the people there, he describes for them Gehenna, he describes them this place where there's a fire just always burning And then he says there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And what he's describing at Gehenna is the nasty, disgusting sound of the dogs and the vermin fighting over food and and wailing and howling and all. You can imagine, right, like this scene of this unkept garbage dump. And so Jesus is telling the people, when you go to hell, this is where you're going to go, is a place like Gehenna. All he would have to tell me is you're going to go on a school bus where your iPhone battery is dead and everyone else is asleep and you're just going to drive forever and sit in the bus, that's all, that would be the worst experience like you could imagine, just sitting in there in silence, no one to talk to, nothing to do on a school bus, right? Like everyone has their own personal house. Some of you are like, yeah, it's like 10.30 on Sunday morning Silent Christian Church. You know, like that works for you, whatever. Um, But but, but, so (laughs) I heard one pastor this week no one disagreed with me there. I'm a little bit uncomfortable about that. <laughs> like, everyone was like, "That eh, sounds about right. <sighs> Almost time for lunch. Um, I read one pastor this week who said, hell is the place where you get thrown down in a pit and all of your earthly possessions come down on top of you. And you spend eternity buried under the things that you thought were most important. And for a minute, that sounds kind of cool. Like, all right, I'll play Xbox while I'm down there. But then you start to think about the weight of those things that you thought mattered most. And some of you, for some of you, the, the idea of being crushed under the weight of your stuff happens every month when you open your credit card statement. And so you already know a little bit about what that feels like because the greed in your life has been destroying you up until this point. When we talk about greed, I want to make sure that we understand that greed is a selfish and excessive desire for more of something such as money than is needed. It's not a bad thing to want to provide for your family. It's not a bad thing to want to live a nice life. The problem with greed is when it's a selfish and excessive desire for more than is needed. It's not about how much money, it's not about how many things it's about how it happens. It's not about the number, it's about the heart. Listen to what James says here in verse two and three. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you will eat up, eat, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. What James is telling you here is that everything is going to break. Everything you own, everything you've worked for, everything that you desire in as far as stuff and as far as money is going to break. Maybe if you follow consumer trends, you're familiar with a term that's, that's a pretty mainstream term called manufactured obsolescence. And what it is, is it's the idea that a company wants to make something that is good enough that it works, but isn't good enough that it will always work. They'll go out of business if you don't buy another one. So it has to be good enough that when it breaks, you want to buy another one from them. But it can't be so good that you never buy another one from them or you'll or they'll go out of business. Right? Like you hear people say all the time, they don't make things like they used to anymore, which is an interesting thing because I don't see anyone driving a Model T on purpose, right? Like they don't make things like they used to anymore, they make them way better, but well, they don't make them like they used to, but Henry Ford didn't want you to drive a Model T forever. He wanted you to drive a Model T for a while and then buy a new one so he could feed his family. And it's, and it's the way it goes, right? Things, 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 stuff, possessions are designed to break. They're designed to not last forever, right? I guarantee you, if we took a survey of the room, no one in this room has a, a washing machine that's older than 25 years old. Someone's going to raise their hand and like, say, oh, I do. Like, for the most part, not because, it, not because you, you hate old things, but because old things just break down. It's just the way things go. Here's the truth I want you to learn about greed. It's that all of my possessions will eventually break, but not before they've already broken me. So if all of my life, if all of my desires, if all of my hopes are around my possessions, the problem is they're all going to eventually break but before they break, or maybe when they break, it's going to break me. This is this is what James is saying. He's saying your riches, your stuff, your greed has destroyed you. And I know because I, I'm with you. Like this was a hard sermon to write this week. Some weeks I'm like I'm gonna get them. That'll show them. Yeah, yeah. You guys don't know. But this week I was like I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to read this. I don't want to deal with this because I'm kind of greedy. And I want my stuff. And so I started thinking, you know what? Part of the reason I'm greedy is because I want a good life for my kids. Part of the reason I want more money is because I want my kids to have the things I didn't have. Part of the reason I want more money is so that my kids are set up and, and la di da da I, I read a statistic this week that was fascinating. Did you know that in almost every culture, regardless of, of the time and the, and the decade and the, and the generation, that on average wealth only lasts for three generations? In fact, there's an old saying, in English it goes like this, it's shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, meaning that great-grandpa had to work hard to get really wealthy, and by the time great-grandchild is an an adult, they'll have to work really hard because they won't have any money. And the problem with that is that it happens because of greed. And so to say I'm trying to set up my family for generations is really just admitting that there's going to be greed down the line somewhere. So one of the smartest men who ever lived is a guy named Solomon. We've talked about him several times. We talked about how Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is basically, if you're an internet kind of person, Proverbs is basically the first Twitter. It's a bunch of of sentences, boom, 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 right after each other from the wisest man who ever lived about how to live and what he's learned. Not only was he the wisest man who ever lived, but most historians would say he could be argued to be the richest man who ever lived. Right, he had had all the smarts and he used them for his benefit and he got rich, okay? But Solomon wrote this in Proverbs chapter 14. He said, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. So the richest guy of all time said all that stuff, all that greed, all that thing you think you want, don't work for it because in the end you're going to go, that wasn't worth it. It wasn't. And that's a hard truth to accept because we're pretty sure that if we just got that, if our paycheck just said this, if our driveway just had that in it, everything would be fine. But what Solomon is saying is I've had all of it, I did all of it, and I'm telling you it wasn't worth it. Listen to what James says here in verse 4. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And James is telling a, a true story here about a time that's happening in ancient Rome when the scriptures are being written that people are being killed left and right solely for the greed and for the gain of a few wealthy people. And, and there's a historian by the name of Sallust who says that the entire nation of Rome is being destroyed, not by war, not by famine, but by greed. By greed. So what do we do? Like, if, if you believe me, if you think I'm right, if you think that what the Bible says about greed is true, how do you get rid of greed in your life? Well, here's my hope. I spent 20 hours this week writing the sermon about getting rid of greed in your life. I've now preached it for the second time, and you're going to write these three steps down. Hopefully, maybe at some point in my life, I can get rid of greed in my life, right? Like, hopefully this happens. So here's three things that I encourage you, if you're a note taker, if you're, if, you're, if you're with me, write these three things down and start working on these in your life. You, you know, I, I love to see it. I'd love to work with you on this because I need as much help as you. The first thing we can do is we can change our focus. Change our focus. Right? If we're we're gonna be honest with ourselves, every decision we make is what's best for me. Where am I going to lunch today? Where where do I wanna go most? Where, Where am I gonna work? Where do I wanna work the most? Where am I gonna make the most money, right? This is this is our this is every question that we ask, every decision we make comes through the lens of how can I do what's best for me? But if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, if we're going to say, I want my heart to be chasing after Jesus, then we have to change our perspective. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. So if we're going to get rid of greed in our lives, the first thing we have to do is we have to change from a temporary personal mindset to an eternal mindset. And stop saying, what's best for me? And start saying, what's best for the kingdom of God? What's best for heaven? What's best for Jesus in this moment? What's not best for me? What's best for the kingdom of God? One of the problems with following Jesus in uh, America and in most places today is it's kind of like a bonus. Like we have our retirement account, so we know that we're going to get to live on the beach when we're 70. And we've got health insurance, so we know that if anything happens, you know, we're good. we're good. The doctor will take care of us. We've got the second home, so we know that when we need to get away, things are good. We, by the way, we probably should sew up eternity, so let's, let's, let's try this following Jesus thing. The problem is, is that Jesus doesn't want to come and be an add-on. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Christianity isn't something you add. It's something that blows up everything you knew. And so maybe the first thing that we need to blow up is our perspective. Maybe for us, the first thing we need to do is stop asking what's best for me and start seeking what's best for the kingdom. The second step is to choose contentment. I I was chuckling to myself this week as I was writing because every week Whitney reads my sermons, my wife Whitney reads my sermons, and she always has some feedback about what jokes aren't funny. Sometimes they don't make it in, sometimes they do, and you guys prove her right, thanks for that. And... uh, But almost every time when I write something that I know I've written before, I'll chuckle to myself because Whitney's going to say, you've said this before. And so when we got to Choose Contentment, she said, you've said this before. And I said, read the next line. And the next line said, I know I've said this before, and I know Whitney's going to tell me I've said this before, but someday maybe we'll all start listening to me. (laughs) Because it seems like the more I talk about it, the more of a struggle it is. It seems like it's, it's an easy thing to say, but it's such a difficult thing to actually do. There's a guy who wrote a bunch of letters in the scriptures called named Paul. And Paul wrote one letter specifically from a jail cell in a dungeon, eating maybe bread if he was lucky, probably eating what he could grab with his free hand, because his other hand was permanently chained to a Roman soldier. So while he's in a jail cell, eating with chained to a soldier 24 hours a day, While he's in a dark, damp dungeon for not really doing anything wrong, Paul writes these lines in Philippians chapter 4. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, I, and I, every time Whitney and I talked about this, and I said, I, I, I know I'm repeating myself. So, but imagine what happens if the entire room decides this is the day we choose contentment. Imagine what happens if today is the day we all say, I don't want to be greedy anymore. Imagine what happens if today is the day we all say, it's time for me to be content with what I have and who I am. Imagine the difference we can make with our money, with our time. I went to college with a girl for a year, who dropped out and uh, we kind of lost contact for a while, and uh, a few years ago she resurfaced on Facebook, and it found out that her story is kind of crazy. She had a surgery and ended up addicted to pain pills. And as is the course for a lot of people in our, in our country right now, the pain pill addiction gave way to a heroin addiction. And she resurfaced on Facebook after one year of being sober from her addiction. Now she's three years sober. She has two children and little boys. Her life is going well. Things are good for her. But because she spent a lot of time in that life, she knows people still. And she wrote a letter to President Obama a few months ago, and you might have seen it on the news this week. because You might have seen her story. She wrote a letter to President Obama because she didn't know what else to do because she had two friends who came to her and said, I want to get out, but she couldn't find a treatment center anywhere because every treatment center is full. I read a story this week that there's a treatment center in Cincinnati, and there were 35 people in line the day after all of the news hit about all of the heroin overdoses this week of 35 people in line who wanted to seek treatment. And the, they, the, the morning they opened the door, they had room for three, and 32 people were sent away. Imagine with me if the church across this area, not just this church, but every church said, we don't want to see that kind of thing happening anymore. And said we're going to be content with what we have and we're going to choose generosity and we're going to start giving. And all of a sudden, the churches are saying, we're the ones who can take care of this. We're the ones who can build the treatment centers. We're the ones who can make room for people who are hurting, who are broken, who are in need. We can give them the news of freedom. Imagine if we decide to choose contentment and we have all of this extra cash flow now that we can do something like make an impact on one of the greatest plagues of the 21st century. Imagine. So it leads us to our third step then, which is kind of a combination of step one and two, which is choose generosity. There's always a choice, right? The choice is, do I get what I want or do I give it to someone else? The choice is, do I do what I want or do I do something nice for someone else? Even if you're not sure, even if you don't want to, this week I want to challenge you to choose generosity. If we're truly going to be the kind of church that loves Jesus and loves like Jesus, we're going to be the church that always chooses generosity. We're going to be the kind of church where the preacher stands up and says, today, what you're going to do when you leave here is you're going to go somewhere and buy a gift card. It can be for $5, it can be for $20. But you're going to go buy a gift card and you're going to leave it somewhere anonymously for someone else. You can put it in your child's teacher's mailbox. If you're a teacher, you can put it in a student's backpack. Whatever it is, it can be a gift card to Kroger. It can be a gift card to McDonald's, to Rite Aid, whatever it is. Today, you're going to go and you're going to buy a gift card for someone. And you're going to choose generosity, even if you can't feel it. Even if you're not sure that it's there. And that's our Love Like Jesus Jesus Challenge this week. Is we're going to go, and it might mean that instead of going out to eat for lunch, we have to go home and eat a sandwich because that five bucks was earmarked for lunch today. It might mean that we're not going to get a coffee one day this week because that five bucks, that 10 bucks, that 20 bucks was marked for coffee this week. But we're going to choose generosity. And maybe all we're going to do is just walk into Kroger, buy a $10 gift card, put it in someone's, it in someone's hand, and just walk back away. But today we're going to choose generosity. I want to read this whole passage for you one more time. James says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your greed have rotted, and your, all of your things are moth-eaten. Your money is worthless, and the rust will be evidence against you. All of it will eat your flesh like fire when you fall into the pit. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Upton Sinclair was a famous author who wrote the book The Jungle. You might have had to read it in high school. But The Jungle is the story of what was happening with child labor, what was going on kind of with with that, with the dangers of all of those things. And The Jungle kind of is credited with helping create labor laws and help safe workplaces and all those sorts of things. But Upton Sinclair did something kind of interesting one day. He was meeting with a group of pastors. And this is in the early 1920s, the late 1920s, when when the kind of the, the business is booming, the economy is good, life in America is good. And he read the first six chapters of the book of James, chapter 5. And he read it in a way that the, the, the pastors didn't quite recognize it, kind of like I just did, where it was a little different than how it was worded in Scripture, but he read it. And he told the pastors, you know, they heard it, and they said, who wrote that? And he gave, them, he gave them the name Emma Goldman. And Emma Goldman was a known American anarchist. She was trying to overthrow the government, trying to overthrow the system. She wanted something different. She didn't think the way things were going was right. And so they asked, who wrote that? And Sinclair said, Emma Goldman. And the preachers pounded their fists on the table, and they said, deport her. Throw her out of this country. She doesn't understand life in America. She doesn't understand what we get, what we deserve. She doesn't understand how much we are allowed to love our money. This is a free country. And Sinclair started laughing. And he said, it wasn't Emma Goldman. It was the book of James. And the preacher's hearts began to sink because they realized that they had allowed the norm of greed and the norm of of the desire for, for wealth to overtake their desire to follow Jesus to the point where they thought the most important thing was money. And they had been so blinded to it that they had allowed the words of their creator to lose their place in their heart. And I'm telling you, all week as I wrote this, and all week as I thought about having this talk with you today, I kept thinking, I can't do this. I can't talk to these people about greed. I'm the greediest guy they probably know. I'm the only 29-year-old they probably know with a Christmas list. Like this is it's bad news. But my hope and my prayer is that like like me this week that today your heart is broken. And that you've been reminded that you live for a much bigger purpose than new golf clubs. That you've been reminded that you live for a much bigger purpose than a nicer car or a bigger house. That you've been reminded that you live for a much bigger purpose than a better purse or a better dress or whatever it is that's on your heart. And so I I hope that as your heart is broken today, that like mine, you'll take this moment to reflect.